We'd like to take a moment to thank our listeners, both here in America and internationally. Please email us at tc49podcast at gmail.com. We will be releasing Patreon episode contact to our regular feed. Thank you. Welcome to True Crime 49. In the cool, dim, empty hotel room, among all the other smidgens of oils and smudges of clear fluids in the bed and on the TV remote smear prints, there is one that is most recent and still warm. A hand cupped on the wall and an ear had pressed against the paint. The sound of a shower starting. The squeak stop of the handle lever and the crackle hiss of the water falling on the empty pan and the quiet beep of the door card out in the hallway. Omar Ducasi often settled into an Anchorage hotel with his four children, who ranged from toddler to teenager. Whenever Ducasi's wife traveled, the children would pack up, temporarily relocating to where room service was readily available and beds were fresh every day. The hotel Ducasi had become a regular, had a driveway access, to a major street and another leading to a less traveled road, the parking lot obscured by buildings and bushes, the lobby, elevators, and hallways equipped with cameras to keep safe every guest. To a man who made money like Ducasi, those amenities were more important than an indoor pool. The television is on, casting pulses of light flash on the beds in the room. An Xbox and Nintendo 64, and scattered amongst a sock or a t-shirt here and there, is kids' toys. The small trash cans ready to be cleaned, takeout remnants and foodstuffs sustaining in the hotel room. The older brother had his heavy backpack with his favorite clothes and his two hats, haphazardly still folded and gently crammed into the travel bag, the smaller pockets tidy and arranged. He would scowl at his sisters they knew better. If they went into his backpack, he kept it next to the wall, next to his side of the bed. Inside, he kept the neatly stacked deck of Pokemon cards. He would lay them out on the bed, press the sheets out with his hefty little fingers, excited to arrange them. They each had strengths and weaknesses. If you used them just right, you could draw in an opponent with a weakness, and then swipe him off the table with the help of the other friend. Each night before school, he would arrange them for tomorrow, adjustments to the structure of the deck, and daydream, wetting his lips and blinking, his sisters dancing and jumping or coloring, snaps out of it, having to pee so bad. The seven-year-old is sleeping, her head touching his ribs and the side of his warm belly, quiet now, sustaining in the hotel room. The baby is seven. Now it's hard to believe. The newest is a three-year-old. The girls followed the mother's example, a quiet woman, whose smile could appear out of humbleness and radiate and spark a mischievous twinkle in good humor if all was safe. Eventually, the outsider would see fearlessness, of course, in the girl from the third world. In the wee hours of the morning, his sister, the seven-year-old, had found a card. Not his favorite card, but one of the top of the deck, a major player. 
She was tiptoeing to the mirror on the wall by the hotel TV with her brush and her hair barrettes. The card was still soft on the corner and had nibbled paper fibers gone on the mushy end. The baby must have got into the bag. She snaps her eyes so the bag in the pocket is open. The three-year-old is sleeping, of course. Her eyes race as she moves from frantic to earnest and sneaks over and puts the pocket back together, trying to see without touching where any of his good ones missing, and she sneaks away. It is still real early, and it is her routine. Her wide little eyes would open in the dark hum of the dim hotel room and sit up quietly and look around. Little mother, a child's head count, and she would catch her father coming in betimes. He would be sneaking in and would turn quickly towards her and then relief and smile he'd come quietly in. The last two times he had brought a hot chocolate, just for her. She woke him up early that morning, whispering, of great concern, he looks around, everyone sleeping in the dimness. She is showing him the card he's trying to focus as she passionately comes to a stop in the story. What? Blinking from sleep, especially lately. It feels lately that even when awake, he feels he's about to wake up. The world is moving faster, it's getting harder to see the angles. There are now so few left. Amongst many broken angles, wagging and tossing, still in the machine work, acting normal. She repeats the whispered story quickly and she pushes the thing into his hand, quizzically looking down at the nibbled, shiny playing card. He sits up quiet, a conclusion immediate, but then he looks upon his 14-year-old son under the blanket. His hat crisp on the back ready for school from the night before. The naughty new baby, sleeping. And the seven-year-old, so hard to believe, looking up at him with eyes grateful in the image of her father. He tells her it's okay, and she can finish her hair. He sits on the edge of the bed. He had told his son to leave the big deck at home. The brick of cards and endless combinations got stolen at school about a half a year ago. The kid was devastated. Everyone was alarmed at how deeply it affected him. It's hard enough to be a parent and not blame yourself. Omar went out the next day and bought him all the packs it took to build him back up to the game deck he had lost. That's actually quite a bit of money. But he could only take enough for two decks to school, that's it. He told him everyone can see your brick of cards, you can go in there anytime you want, but so can they. He was getting tough now. The kids knew better. He knew every card in those two piles and they worked in combos and collectives. After they stole his brick, he almost never lost a match. All of these things and so many more washing over Omar as he sat staring through the wall. Her head tugged to the side, the brush yielding through her morning hair, and her eye pulled in the corner, looking in the mirror, watching him the entire time. She has been waking up earlier and earlier. She blinked and expected it as Omar got up. Grabbed his crisp hat from next to his bed and grabbed his wallet and kissed her on the head and said he'd be right back. 
He came back to the lobby a very short time later, went to nod to Dennis Medina at the front desk, but no one was there. Coming up the hallway, he heard something up ahead of him, but when he got there, it was nothing. Except maybe an eyeball in the blue-black glass of the door peep. He laid out McDonald's on the round table and the hash browns and the warmness stirring children from under blankets and Omar woke him with the voice he would use when the boy was a baby. And the 14-year-old woke up and in turn blinking McDonald's sleepily, then smiling, the table and the children pulled up around Omar. A few bites of potato and the first bite of the other, Omar began to speak. Outlining a scenario as the little faces followed along, looking amongst each other periodically unsure of anything. Then Omar lays the card on the table. The son looked at the card, and progressive quick looks around the room. The baby, guilty as charged. The sister. The breakfast on the table, and then to Omar. Betrayal. Anger. Contemplation. It's okay, he said, and he thinks for a moment. But I'm gonna need at least 20 minutes before we can go to school. I have to restack my decks. What is it about the little things? Is it the last hiding refuge of the light of the world? And they never let anyone else know that their routine in the hotel room was gonna be off. By about 20 minutes. In over a decade in Anchorage, Omar Ducasi made a living with very little trace. Occasionally listed as a janitor, Ducasi was custodian of a large amount of cash and illegal substances. Just as devoted as he was as a father, he was ruthless in business. Omar is around 250 pounds and shuffling out of his clothes, the steam beginning to creep out of the shower curtain timidly into the room. When the tub pan through the wall erupts in heavy thuds rolling like work boots in a tumbling dryer. The door bursts open, startled eyes wide and deep as it's happening. The destruction rising from within him as his large arms begin to come up. Clunk popping thuds to the crown of the skull, flick back posted stamps in the hair. Movement makes punitive damages as errant blows strike across the cheekbone and the top lip parting to the teeth. But it's the one to the lobe in the back of the head that you gotta work to get a shot at. And then it's all quiet. And hunkered over men breathing heavy, the shower steam get his feet and his hands secured and tape his fucking mouth. No time to take a breath. The hotel clerk was a 21-year-old addict working with other people of the same caliber. There would be a price paid for Omar's location. He alerted the proper people, checked them in, and made the necessary keys. The peoples of the Dominican Republic, coming on the scene after almost all of the seats had already been taken by the Russians. You have to walk in with pride, and the whip and the eyes lashing down on you, it must slap wet. Undefiant confidence. 
Hitting the streets of New York, their island home a world away, still tearing itself apart. The neighborhoods beginning to brim, spilling into New Jersey. A new breed emerging in the prison yard. One by one, they pass from the neighborhoods into the Department of Corrections, standing singular, looking up into the howling silo filled with inked maniacs. After watching countrymen be overrun and spread out on the trading blanket, no one to mediate for them, much less to translate. They had to make a statement to speak before themselves. Violence destruction, maiming, then slaughtering. The Russian proverb, eyes are afraid, but hands are doing the work. Crank up the TV. Nearly no place for all the feet trying to begin to lift him. Slipping down heavy, straining to flop him into the big laundry cart. The hallway is humming empty, and they cross quickly into the door directly across from Omar's room. The mumbled blaring game show, muffled noises behind the door. And an eyeball now blinking behind the blue-black glass of the door peep. Get him in a chair. Omar's thick eyelashes begin to receive taps of signals from the brain again. Looking up through bleary eyes, a flash of panic and almost pleading than the jolt of arms and legs moving a fraction, but never leaving their place. Eyes, looking into perilous eyes. And there are things that they want, and you have to go through the steps. A hole is opening in his emotions that falls away farther than the center of the earth. Alaska's statewide drug enforcement unit had a banner year in 2003 with a substantial drug ring bust indicting 46 people. Slowing the flow of the South American drug market into Alaska allowed for many different drug rings to be formed. Cocaine brought into Alaska is most often concealed on passengers or in luggage coming through ports like ferries, roads, and planes. 48% of law enforcement in 2005 attributed cocaine to property theft and violent crime. The big man was sitting at the small apartment kitchen table, the table at radius around him, concentrically arranged, as if the other man, the chairs and the table had been pulled up to Omar, the man with the big, bulgy, lusty eyes. His heavy arms hung low, elbows almost on his thighs, hands deep under the table. Motioned by the smaller man to sit down, directly across from the big man. He has never stopped locked gaze from the moment of entering the room and walking into this darkened and quiet family living room kitchen. Even the dishes are clean and stacked on the rack behind him. The smaller man sucks on the inside of his mouth for a minute and looks as if he's going to reveal to you something cunning and genius. He describes a few incidents from the large man's resume. The large man is staring at you and grinning as George assures you in the validity of Omar's pedigree. A proof of violence. This is just a meet and greet. The cops had just left ten minutes ago, 
There had been a chase of some sort, and the young man had been in the dreamscape of his beautiful treasures, his young wife and their baby. A stern rap at the door in this part of town. The baby is lifted off of the blankets and the carpet before the cold air will wash in, and the young mother stands at a blind angle to the door. Its cops bent in the bird's eye of the door, they look like they're amping up for a dance routine in a talent show. Open the door, keep one hand tight at neck height. All is well here, officer. Thank you kindly. The wife steps into view, holding the baby. The cop takes a small step in with his body then stops one foot on the threshold, flat and solid. He's ready to proceed. Do I look like I just ran from the cops? I've been home from work for hours. My truck is outside, covered in frost by now. In my spot. The cop is still ready to proceed. I'll guarantee you my hood isn't the one out there steaming. Then the cop nods slowly and lets go. The young man shuts the door. The cops go upstairs and knock on Omar's door, the clunky 70s era boat car out front in the parking space. The hood and the windshield steaming and the engine ticking in the black cold darkness. They knock and knock, then wait and leave. Ten minutes or so, there's a gentle knock at the young man's door again, more polite and hushed. It's the guy George who is often driven around in the clunky boat car. Leather jacket and a Latin American accent that's unexpected from his looks. Omar wants to talk to you. At the table, George is making the motion with his hands of knocking off or cutting off thumbs. Then he makes a misstep. The young man had been listening to the sales pitch, calm as the words poured off of George's lips, beginning and building the sentence structure of a threat. The young man looked in George's eye. That no one would want it to spill out, he says, as he begins to motion through the walls and the floor to the lower apartment, where the twenty-year-old wife and the baby son spend their wonderful mornings in the warm sun behind the foggy cold windows. An unexpected response from within, the moment George began to motion through the walls and the floor, the young man cut him short by sitting up, breathing in, and looking upon George as a wanderer who had wandered into a kill pit. George's eyes showed he was just the toady. The young man's hand and elbow came up over the table and he waved George away as if he was already disposed and looks into the pools of Omar's eyes. There are four doors in this building. He holds up his four fingers, proud of his possession, showing them in open air. Your car is out there, in your spot, steaming. You brought the cops here. In fact, you brought the cops to my door. George quietly translates in Spanish, studious and helpful now. If he is who George said he is, then he knows the rules. After all, this is just the meet and greet. Neighbors sniffing each other out, defining the terms of their proximity.
One day, the young man gets a page to call home. His wife says Omar knocked at the door. He looks worried and asks to borrow lemon or lemon juice. We don't have any lemons. She tells him he knocked again. Shortly after, very polite, very concerned. And when would you be home? I took his number. Call him. The Russian proverb. In Russia, a man is head. The woman is neck. She turned head. Calculating the time it would take to race home, not get pulled over, the young man calls Omar. He picks up almost immediately. Omar doesn't want to say what it is. It's the baby. There was a bag of some stuff in the couch. The baby found it and got into it. Maybe she ate some. What should I do, he asks. A month or two, maybe more, Omar calls out of the blue. He's very excited. I need a ride, George. He stole a kit from Omar. The young man fired up a suburban and they drove to the Mapco next to the Honorable Merrill Field. There he was in the passenger side pulling slowly through the pumps in the boat car. The crazy girlfriend driving. Eyes looking everywhere, Omar slips out of the suburban almost silently is walking directly towards George. They see Omar and they both act as if the farmer has caught them in the hen house. And the rear tire of the boat car on the icy concrete pad of the gas station. Omar's laughing and he's sauntering back to the suburban. The boat car with gas full on goes right out into two lanes of outbound evening traffic. It makes it out into the lane and there's a long hiss of tire sliding on glazed frost and frozen drips. Of a car with its brakes locked up. Of a minivan heading toward the driver's door of the boat car. The native girl foot to the wood, the back tire whizzing and throwing steam, the minivan crashes in, loud hollow crunch. The boat car gets a boost and whips the ass end back and forth and takes off. The nice minivan, large bodies inside, moving arms. The minivan steps on the gas, chasing the hit and run. The outbound lane is stopping as the van clears out. And the suburban coming out behind him. A wall of stopped windshields. Bewildered at the spectacle. The van's driver was very spirited and cuts the boat car off into the shoulder. The van stops and the door opens and a squad of Samoans come out. The Suburban is coming into the slush, bleeding off as much speed as possible, coming to rest ten feet from the back of the boat car. Omar is out next to the passenger door and motions to the Samoans with his finger. There will be one second, me first, he said and Omar reaches into the boat car window and comes out with a phone and something unseen. The large men are surrounding the boat car in the rear view window and the two men are laughing and slapping each other's shoulders. Long ago, Omar lost his fear. The things he did for survival in the Dominican Republic exemplified his confidence and brutality. He often used this to his advantage throughout New York, New Jersey, and eventually Anchorage. But as his own son was becoming a man, Omar was considering the oaths that he had made and the example that he was setting. 
The spring was approaching and Omar came around again. He had something he wanted to ask about. Being ready for anything as he spoke, quietly often, so to stand close. Chickens, he said. He wanted to go to Palmer to buy chickens. There was a man who could get two eggs from every chicken back home in his village. If he could buy all the things, he could maybe set it up. And his whole family back home could live off of and sell chickens. A wall, he said, of eggs and chickens. He bought two young chickens, a rooster and a hen, a cage and some feed. And on the way back to Anchorage, the cluck and the flutter in the back of the suburban, looking out, Omar began to tell a story. Back home, before New York, before New Jersey, he'd grown up with a reputation. And one day a pickup truck came down into the village and asked him to get in. He was familiar with one of the guys. They were big time. They drove up into the small mountains a long ways and up into a hidden villa. A compound in the dry jungle. They had him before them. An old man, sitting in the shadows, comes out into the light holding a chicken. And tells young Omar that he can see into him. And one of the old man's eyes was broken and smeared. And he looked into Omar's large, bulging eyes and said, Are you ready to go eat of the world? Anything you want is out there. The old man watched and burned into Omar's eye as the wet crunch of the chicken's neck coming off. And the sprinkling of blood and mongrel chants. The ritual of blood and obligations. The young man once showed him a Bible in English on one side and Spanish on the other. The young man read, Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Omar waved his hands no and stood up to go. He said, I cannot hear that. He smiled but was anxious and sheepish, a rare glimpse. He said only that he could not hear those things, as if he would be in immediate peril as if a hole would open deeper than the center of the earth. The Attic and the Hotel Maintenance Man Implicated in Omar's Disappearance alleged Ducasi beat and stole 70000 in cash and drugs from Kenneth Hernandez. Hernandez then elicited the help of his stepfather, brother, and cousin to retaliate. The two hotel workers received a minor sentence that has been served. Hernandez and his family have yet to be arrested, questioned, or sought. The more credible word on the street from both sides of the law is Omar did acquire drugs and money as described. However, he overstepped with the wrong organization, who was thorough in their retaliation. The flexible line swoops down from behind him and zips back onto his neck. His head is shaking back and forth. The power he exerted was impressive. As the whites of his bulging eyes fanned blood red. As the blood vessels burst forth. Rising. To break free. The blackness starts at the top of the back of the head. And spills like ink across the milk paper of your mind. As it comes down over your ear. The room becomes silent. 
and it passes over your eyes. Omar slumps into the chair, his eyes blank. As the line is held for time, creaking into the skin, a tear slips down his cheek. May 11, 2005 in Anchorage, Alaska, Omar Dukasi dropped off his children at school. At the end of the day, no one came to pick them up. Up Campbell Airstrip Road in a shallow ditch barely covered with sticks and leaves. They left him. The clouds moving periodically over the sun, brightness dimming and cooler. And the silver cloud's edge begins to blind platinum and the world is lit again over Omar. The Russian proverb, one doesn't shear the naked sheep. True Crime 49. Find us online at TC49 Podcast. See show notes for more information.